I stood on the river of Jordan to see them ships come sailing over. Stood on the river of Jordan to see them ships sail by. Oh, brother, what you help me? Oh, my brother, who want you help me pray? Oh, brother, come and help me to see them ships sail by. I stood on the river of Jordan to see them ships come sailing over. Stood on the river of Jordan to see them ships sail Welcome back to The White Bikini. Joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Banton. How are you, Nicholas? Great, Marie. It's good to be with you again. On today's episode, we are discussing Seneca Village, the secret of Central Park. I came upon this by accident on Instagram. I follow a guy named Keith who does tours of the history of New York. And it popped up on one of his feeds, and it really kind of stopped me that I knew nothing about a secret village in Central Park. I just assumed that Central Park was built on open property. It all was built on joy and love and nothing was stolen. And boy, was I wrong. You and I both. Let's not forget the entire island of Manhattan was stolen. So I suppose it's relative. I do feel really naive. But I'd like to go over, there's a lot of history, but I'd like to really talk about what I think is the most important points, because this story has a lot of layers. But many credit Andrew Williams, a member of the New York African Society for Mutual Relief, with the creation of Seneca Village, because he was the first person to purchase some land in the area. And according to the New York Historical Society, Williams bought three lots of land on September 27, 1825 from a married couple called Elizabeth and John Whitehead. Williams paid $125 for all three lots together. And the Whiteheads, unlike many white landowners in the region, were some of the few people that would sell property to Black Americans. You know, and I think an interesting, um, not to cut you off, but an interesting footnote. We have to remember that at this point, uh, New York State was incrementally abolishing slavery. So at, by, at 1825, you still probably had maybe a few hundred to a few dozen enslaved Africans or enslaved African-Americans in New York State at that point. So what you're saying about white selling to blacks, it, it's a really radical idea for that time. I want to learn more about Elizabeth and John Whitehead. Who were they? What prompted them to sell it? It couldn't have just been financial. You know what? As, as dark as that period of American history represents in terms of the negativity of race relations, there were some enlightened folks. Not everyone was a raving racist lunatic. There were enlightened people who wanted to live in harmony. Uh, one of the, you know, you, you thank you for sending me these wonderful show notes. But one of the things I learned about Seneca Village was that 
once it became established that you had German immigrants who not only moved to live next to black, uh, their black neighbors, but they actually started to attend church and they started to intermarry. So it was this really incredible experiment taking place at the time. I thought it was very moving and I liked hearing about African-Americans, German, the Irish, all living together in what I think is a very futuristic village. For the time, even now, I mean, I think here in the Philadelphia region, we have, is it Mount Airy? Um, that's considered, you know, one of the more progressive integrated uh, neighborhoods in the entire United States. So even this day and age, the idea of blacks and whites living together as equals in a middle class, upper middle class neighborhood in any large numbers is, is still a fairly unusual concept. I agree. And since most white landowners refused to sell lots to black people, Seneca Village became one of the few places in New York where black people could own property. And according to the website Interesting Shit, New York State ruled in 1821 that in order to vote, black men had to own at least $250 in property, something not required of white voters. So being able to buy the property in Seneca Village also meant being able to acquire voting rights. And I found that monumental. Yes, America has been establishing hurdles for black people to vote since it became a reality. And, you know, as much as we attribute a lot of negativity to the Southern states, let's not forget that the North played a part in oppressing free blacks, uh, black people aspiring to uplift themselves. So this wasn't some grand conspiracy. This was the way the world worked in 19th century America for black people. So this is why this discovering about Seneca Village is such an amazing idea. Because in some, and in some respects, I think you might have expected something like this to happen in New York. But once you learn about all the obstacles that these villagers had to overcome, it's a remarkable story. I mean, I Spike Lee, where's the movie, buddy? Yeah, I just was absolutely fascinated. And it's, you know, by the mid 1850, the village, as we just discussed, was a fully integrated community and lower Manhattan was becoming more and more crowded. And I, I found this fascinating too. The Irish potato famine started in 1845 and immigrant families also started moving into Seneca Village. Out yeah. of roughly 225 residents in 1855, up to one third were Irish immigrants, and also, as we discussed, also of German descent, according to Central Park Conservancy. That is a remarkable statistic. You know, there there is a saying that a realtor uh, sort of pulled me aside and discussed with me, and I thought it was interesting that you know, the reverse is that whenever a neighborhood becomes more than 20% black, that's when white flight occurs. So here you are, 19th century, um, you know, early 1850s, and you have a situation where Irish immigrants and German immigrants are flocking to a neighborhood, to a village established by black people. That is, that is really interesting to me. And I guess it's and also sad how the script was flipped you know, to the latter part of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And in the mid to later 1850s, the city used a very controversial tool called eminent domain. And just to make sure that everyone understands, it refers to the power of the government to take private property 
and convert it into public use. The Fifth Amendment provides that the government may only exercise this power if they provide, excuse me, provide just compensation to the property owners. And the dark side of this that uh, some of your show notes highlighted, and I thought this was, it was sobering, but I kind of expected this is the way it was gonna go. So the press in New York City started disparaging the neighborhood. They called it a shanty town, and they talked about mongrel dogs wandering the streets to, to essentially disparage the people, disparage the community. And also, I think, to lower the property value so that when the government went to buy the property, it would be a lot cheaper. And one of the last pieces of uh, press that I read about Seneca Village before eminent domain took over was that it was nicknamed Nigger Village. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, it's kind of what you expected on some level. But and and I, I think that's the why it sort of disappeared. I think the people who always win in history won. And so that for perhaps for a lot of people, it was just, just some dirty shanty town and here is this beautiful Central Park. So for a lot of Americans at the time, the idea of a prosperous black village was such an anathema to their consciousness, to, to what they always known. It became easy for the press to disparage Seneca Village and eventually they did. And Nigger Village essentially became, or at least a part of Central Park. You know, all of these eminent domains are prompted by money. And when they say they gave them a fair buyout, you know, in the 1850s, there was no fair buyout to any of the, any of the village owners. Yes, white or black. I don't think- White or black. And I, that's what I was saying about that the, there was a uh, press onslaught to disparage the village. And so, I think that also drove down the, 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 the property value. So it, it's such a tragic story, a, a beautiful moment with the promise of racial integration and black wealth and what almost always happens, happens. More powerful people uh, start to eye, eye it and they take it away. And there's also evidence to suggest that Seneca Village was a spot for the Underground Railroad, the network of secret routes that helped Black people escape enslavement, helping them reach the North or go all the way to Canada. All That Interesting's website did write that several of the basements in the village were used to hide Black people who were trying to escape enslavement. And just on top of all the fascinating things regarding it, it would make sense that it was used on the Underground Railroad. It would, it would make perfect sense. It would make perfect sense uh, because at that time, as I said, you know, New York was still working to abolish uh, slavery in the state. But Canada, which is only, you know, a few dozen hours away on foot, was a free community, was a free country. So it would make sense for escaped African-Americans um, to try to make their way to either New York State or continue further on to Canada. So it's it's really sad that I never knew anything about this. I consider myself someone who's just fascinated with American history. And up until you mentioned it to me, uh, you mentioned Seneca Village and my mind went to Seneca Falls, which was part of the suffrage movement, uh, women's suffrage movement. So I thought I knew about this, but in reality, it wasn't until I started reading the notes that you prepared that I started to really understand how much I did not know anything about the historical 
uh, relevance of Seneca Village? As I said, I, I came upon it by accident and I was just fascinated. And it, I feel for many decades, there really wasn't any talk about Seneca Village. And then there was an archeological excavation in 2011 that began to uncover what they described as a thriving multi-ethnic middle-class community that became you know, the first victims of gentrification. Yeah, I, I, you know what, I, I saw that. I saw that production and it was interesting because I, you know, I made reference to how the press uh, tried to denigrate the community. And what was interesting is that once they started to excavate uh, the remains of the village, what they found was that many of the homes contained cookware and dinnerware and all the artifacts that are associated with middle-class communities. So the present, uh, the presenter compared Seneca Village to what was taking place in, uh, in Greenwich Village at the time. And Greenwich Village in the 1840s, 1850s was a fairly affluent white community in Lower Manhattan. And it was interesting to see that the people in Seneca Village were living a, a standard of living similar to wealthy whites in, in uh, Greenwich Village. And I thought that was very interesting. And it does explain that a number of events in the 1990s colluded to bring the history of Seneca Village to light. In 1991, a 17th and 18th century site of thousands of African burials was uncovered in Manhattan. Now the African Burial Ground National Monument, the discovery at the time spurred people to think about early African presence in New York City's history. It's fascinating. I think one of the things that I hope our audience can appreciate is that even though we're living in the 21st century, our understanding of not only enslaved Black lives during the 1800s, uh, but also free Black lives was so distorted by a post-Civil War push by organizations like the Daughters of the Confederacy to essentially reconceptualize what black people were like, that we were almost these ignorant, savage, childlike people incapable of achieving nothing. And I think it's from this cultural bias, even in the 21st century, that even people like me, a person, a, a black man, I still have a hard time conceptualizing that in 1850, you had prosperous black people buying land in what is now Central Park, living a middle-class lifestyle with their white neighbors, and in some instances, uh, integrating with those communities and having mixed race families, going to church together. Uh, there are records that your notes provided, there are records of baptisms and christenings. And it's such, it's such, I feel, sad in one respect, like we were robbed of the truth of this history. And I think it's not only good for black people, it's good for white people to understand this, that we share this history of actually getting along and not living in fear of one another. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. It does remind me of Mount Airy, which I have a family member, uh, really my brother-in-law's cousin, and they live in harmony, all different races. And it's funny when you mention that, because it does remind me of that Mount Airy, Greenwich Village vibe, that people could live in peace, but always in this world, it's profit above harmony. And mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, was it, was Central Park worth having to do that? I don't know. I think it's one of those weird histories, uh, questions of history where in that instance, if that village had continued to expand and maintain the contours that it established back in the 1840s and 1850s of being a place of racial integration and to a certain extent, racial uh, reconciliation, 
if the German immigrants and the Irish immigrants had learned to coexist with black people without fear and suspicion, how would that have changed not only the history of New York, but potentially the history of the United States? If we establish a model of racial harmony, as you said, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it starts from a small seed, but it could have grown to be something different. So the problems that we're trying to solve 150 years later, 170 years later, you know, we may have actually had a, gotten a head start on it had Seneca Village not been destroyed. And all the other Seneca villages that crop up in the late 1900s and early 20th century in America. And I think about all the records that were lost, all the families that don't know that they were connected to Seneca Village. I just can't imagine the level of everything that was destroyed. Again, we've talked about this on most of our podcasts throughout history, that all these records are destroyed, kind of tarnishing and ruining the legacy of many families. You're absolutely right, but I think it's also important to recognize that was a deliberate. It was either uh, outright directed or just a kind of what I consider de uh, deliberate neglect, where it's Black history, so what does it matter if it gets preserved? What does it get matter if it gets saved? But it's not Black history, it's American history. And I think that's, we're still fighting that paradigm. I think I still think even in our schools, if you mention anything about black people, it becomes black history. And I still don't think a large part of white America see themselves connected to black people in American history. What do you think about that? I think a very specific group of Americans post Donald Trump presidency went back to that mindset though it makes me sad to think that it was always there. I think it was always there. I think Donald Trump, as we've discussed many times, gave a certain segment of white America permission to be ugly. And that's all that happened. He didn't build the monster. The monsters were always there. It's just that he he opened the gates and he let the monsters out. And they they now they're comfortable and now they feel empowered and now they can go on national television and spout just the most awful things. And now, I mean, some of these people can't even run for office without being sounding like the monster. You know, there was a, there was a, I don't want to digress from our topic, but there was a, um, a campaign debate in Wisconsin with Liz Cheney, who I'm not a fan of. But when Liz Cheney is the voice of reason on a stage, you know something is wrong with, with white America. I mean, these people were talking cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But anyway, let's get back to the to topic at hand, because I do have a, disturbing habit of digressing from the topics that we agreed to talk about. Um, what What's your I'm, lasting What's your lasting impression of what this village represents? Because I'm still in a state of being stunned and astonished that this thing existed and I, it, it existed in Central Park and I knew nothing about it. I'm happy it existed, but like many things in this country, I'm very sad that it was torn apart unexpectedly and unfairly. Uh, just, it's kind of like the American Indian, bury my heart, it wounds it knee. It's all of these people that built this country along with many other people, whether black, white, American Indian. And it makes me sad that as usual, the people with the higher checkbooks were able to take it over from eminent domain and just kind of whitewash an entire generation. Yeah, yeah, I think you said it pretty succinctly. Um... You're right. Uh, from from the history that you shared with me, there was definitely a concerted effort for lower Manhattan elites um, to 
take this property and then denigrate the people that live there. And then, as you said, erase them from history. And if it wasn't for that archeological dig in 2011, I'm not sure we will be able to really appreciate that these people were prospering. And I think one of the dirty aspects of this is that it plays upon black tropes, uh, black racist tropes in that if black people are living in a community, it must be infested with crime and depravity. But the exact opposite took place in Seneca Village, that these people were living a good life and they weren't trying to oppress their white neighbors. They actually brought them into the community. And as you said, one third of the community was non-black. That's significant. I mean, and honestly, my both of my grandmothers came over on the boat from Ireland. So when I heard it was a lot of Irish immigrants, it really touched me. I've gone through a lot of records and I've actually have the paperwork of the boat that my grandmother came on with her sister. So it's just extraordinary to me. I always felt that the African-American community and Irish-American community had a special bond because the Irish were not treated as well either when they came over originally, though I would not compare it to the African-American experience. But I always felt that there was a kinder connection and maybe more in my upbringing that I've always had with the African-American community. I agree with you. I think, and this is what I was alluding to, maybe I wasn't as eloquent in stating this, is that there was this history of racial harmony, or at least as practical as we can get to something like that in Seneca Village. And I think it could have been a model, it could have been a template for the rest of America, that Irish immigrants, German immigrants, free Blacks, property owning Black people, and learn to get along and live, and live good lives in that community. So I, I, there's a sadness. As I, there, I'm stunned that A, I didn't know about this, and, and I'm also sad that we lost that. We lost a chance to heal some of the most desperate wounds in America. And let's think about it. This is 1850. So this is 15 years before the, um, actually uh, 1861. So this is just like, uh, you know, a decade before the Civil War. The Civil War starts in 1861. So, you know, who knows? Who knows if a Seneca village or Seneca villages expanded throughout the North, how it might have shaped the history of race relations in America. Because let's I mean, face it. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go on. No, I was just gonna say one of the one of the dirty truths about living in America is that whenever the whites leave, they take their wealth. And whenever the wealth goes, you know, the, this is why we wind up in these communities, you know, here in Philadelphia. I once asked a friend, have you ever thought about why these inner city desperate neighborhoods are almost always all black? And she didn't have an answer. And I think part of it is that we're brought up in a society where we're conditioned to think if it's dangerous or bad or, or desperate, it has to be black because that's just the natural state of blackness. And I think that's dangerous. And I think a Seneca village could have broken that trope, could have broken that pattern, that schema that exists in the minds of so many Americans. I 100% agree. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, chronically on the news, especially we, we live outside Philadelphia. There was another shooting last night in the subway right near the Academy of Music when ironically, you know, one of the most important plays of our lifetimes was taking place and people were being shot at in the subway. And it's terrible. And I, I feel like the pandemic has just kind of uncovered this tidal wave that I feel like no one can get a handle on. I think that's what's going on. And I think people are just kind of going their own way. And I think people have decided they've checked out from the responsible members of society, people that are telling them the truth. I think people are checked out, they're doing their own thing. And 
it's it's almost like those um, disaster movies where you know people are told that their comet's coming and it's like the day before impact and people are just going wild in the streets. And I feel like that's what's going on in America right now, that people are just going wild and just doing anything and everything. And the rest of us are just trying to keep, keep it together. And, and the shooting took place, and I apologize, it should have been more clear, outside of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, yeah. And like I, I mean, said, it's, it's, it's one of those things as, as we started talking that, uh, that connects violence with blackness. And, and, and this is why I'm so sad about what happened to Seneca Village, because I think our leaders and even the citizenry of this country, we're still struggling with the idea that, you know, black and white people can get along, we can cooperate and we can build something beautiful. But, you know, the reason why I think there's a connection to what you said is that, you know, you hear in the news, there's been a shooting. We automatically assume that it's some sort of black gang bang thing. And I think we are so divided. We're so separated that to have been robbed of the opportunity to reconcile back in the 1850s, just think about that, 170 years. Just imagine what this country would look like if we had something similar to or akin to 170 years of racial reconciliation and economic and the economic impact that comes with that kind of reconciliation. That's tremendous. And I still think that all of these different generations of Americans live through a lot of trauma. And I think some of their outlying anger towards other races yes. is just a traumatic response. Yes, yes. I think what you're saying is spot on. I, I think sometimes it has nothing to do with specifics. It has to do with pain. And you and I have discussed this. You're right. I think the experience of the Irish should not be belittled just because we can acknowledge that black people had to overcome tremendous odds. I think there needs to be room for compassion for all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And I think I think we you know we need to live in a world that we need to live in a country where we can acknowledge the atrocities of slavery and racism, but also recognize that Irish people didn't come here and have it handed to them. No, I mean, my grandmother, she was in the service industry, and maybe that's where I had a higher level of exposure to the African-American community because my grandmother was a waitress and most of the staff, whether it was in the cooking area, cleaner, were African-Americans. So there was never this feeling that they were better or I was better because my grandmother obviously worked at a country club. My grandmother lived in the basement of a country club. So there wasn't ever that feeling that they were better or worse we were all just kind of fighting the same fight yes and i think that's what we've lost in this country to get to take it back to national politics i think we've lost this this idea that we're in it together yeah, we're fighting on the same side yeah yeah but right now i think we're fighting against each other and the, the crazy thing is that in most instances there's usually enough to go around for everyone but I think there's a sense of desperation. I have to get mine now. And if I don't, you know, my kids and I will will suffer for this. And I think that's the ugliness that Donald Trump gave permission to, gave license to encourage. Because we all have darkness in us, Marie. I think you'd agree with that. But I think that man gave permission and he, he blew the flames of the ugliness that exists within people. And I think the pandemic just exacerbated the fear, you know, running out of food, not yes. having enough. I think in the beginning when we were running out of gloves, alcohol, cleaning supplies, I think it triggered people that were already prone to trauma to another level of trauma. Yeah, I, I totally agree. 
so where do you think we take this? What's our, what's our parting words for our guests or for our audience about Seneca Village and what it means? I'm still processing, just learning about this. Well, I, I believe it can teach us that we can all live together in harmony. And I would like to leave it on a positive note that in fall of 2021, autumn is a beautiful time in New York. But last year, obviously during the pandemic in the fall, there was darkness in New York. Uh, there were so many people that had passed, you know, obviously that's a heavily populated area. But I like the fact that they did have a jazz concert right where Seneca Village was to bring out the good energy in the city. And I thought that's what I want people to take away from that is that energy's there, even if the village is not. I do believe in not I do believe in spirituality, spirituality, energy. And this gentleman, his name is Jimmy Katz. He it was a series called Walk with the Wind, and they had a jazz concert right where Seneca Village was built. And I thought that's the good takeaway from this is even if it's not there and the buildings aren't there, the energy and the spirit is there. And that just gives us being able to take that to a next level. Though I don't know that it's gonna happen in the next few months or even years. I think we've uncovered an anger in this country that I don't know how it's gonna be put back together again. I don't mean to sound like a politician, but I think fundamentally human beings are hopeful creatures and Americans are especially hopeful. And while we may take a step back or several steps back, I think the trajectory of our society and of our culture is to move forward and to progress and to get better. And I suspect that's where we are. We're in one of these sort of retrograde phases where it feels like we're losing the gains of the past, but I suspect that it's more of a recalibration and we're moving towards something brighter. Before we, I, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. No, go on. I was just gonna ask, but this is trivial. What's, what's this week's sponsor? Thank you for asking. We got so heavy, I didn't want this week's sponsor Nick, you go to a barber. Uh, yes, I do. It's a good experience. You know a barber is important. This week's sponsor is the shop on Market Street, 134 East Market Street, Westchester, PA. They are the best barbers in Delaware, Montgomery, and Chester County. So if you have any young young children, grown adults, you want the best cut, please go see the shop on Market Street. They follow them on Instagram at the shop on Market Street or their website, which is www.theshopwc.com. Why, thank you. And would we happen to have any personal relationship to the owner? Yes, it's my niece, Ashley. <laughs> Ashley you need to go there, Nick. Ashley does a fantastic job, folks. So uh, if you're in the Westchester area and you need a really nice cut, uh, it's unisex, right? So um, it is unisex. Full disclosure, her Instagram page is mostly boys. Yeah, she does a really good job, folks. So if you need a really nice cut, go see Ashley. Are you going to go there, Nick? Why don't you make an appointment? I, I have a standing appointment. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today on the White Bikini. Please make sure to follow the White Bikini wherever you subscribe to your podcast. And please follow us on our Instagram page at the White Bikini. Thank you. Until next time.